Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is a by the book episode, a conversation with Sandra Richter. And on the podcast today, I have invited Sandy to come on the show and talk to us about her book, Stewards of Eden, what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. And I came across Sandy's book several months ago, actually, and wow, what an amazing book this one was. Um, Some of Sandy's work actually deals a lot with the Old Testament. She is, in fact, an Old Testament scholar and launching much of her work and rooting much of her work in the same exact place that I've rooted this podcast, um, you know, caused my ears to perk up quite a bit. And yet when I read what Sandy has been researching and what she has been studying and then listening to the applications she's capable of making from the Old Testament to very, very current and modern struggles and difficulties and things that are not even on most people's radars, at least it was never on mine, um, it really gave me reason for pause. And I realized that I I actually missed quite a few things that were worth uh, being talked about from the Old Testament. And so I'm really grateful to Sandy for her work and for the the hour or so that we spent talking. She's very eager to listen and to learn. She wants to know her audience and asks questions before we recorded the episode just about my audience and what I think about you all and, and where I'm coming from so that she can better help us. And she just does a really great job of breaking down the points for us and sharing um, her perspective. As she'll say, she wanted this book to be sort of like a tract, something short, to the point, punchy, and uh, giving us good application for opportunities to put into real life practice some of the things that she is talking about. And so I'm very excited for you to listen in on this conversation. Uh, We ended our time talking about maybe needing to get together for a future discussion. I kind of asked a couple of questions that she said would take a lot longer than our opportunity on the phone did the first time, but maybe we could have her back and we'll look to that in the future. If any of you are interested, please reach out and let me know. And that may be something we can do. But I would just like to introduce um, Sandra to you. Sandra is a Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College. She is a member of the Committee for Biblical Translation for the NIV. Her scholarly publications include an array of technical studies of the history, society, and economy of the Hebrew Bible. But she is best known in the church for her work, The Epic of Eden, a Christian entry into the Old Testament as well as her riveting DVD curriculums designed for those serious about their faith. She is a sought-after speaker and teacher for ministry conferences, retreats, leadership events, and academic events. And it is um, a very great pleasure of mine, privilege of mine, to have her on the show. And I really trust that you will get a lot out of this and will want to go out and buy Sandy's book, Stewards of Eden, probably um, sooner rather than later. And so without any more of an introduction, I would like to offer to you this conversation that I had with Sandy Richter. Well, Sandra, it's great to have you on the show, or I guess you you say you can like to be called Sandy, and so I'll address Mm -hmm. you that way as well. But thank you so much for agreeing to, to talk with me today. Absolutely. It's great to be here, Joshua. Thanks for the invite. 
Yeah. So again, uh, Sandy, I know you've got at least two books and um, The Epic of Eden and Stewards of Eden. And I I would Mm -hmm. like to focus our time a little bit on Stewards of Eden, but feel free to reference back to your former work. I know you did that several times in the book itself. If something that you want to talk about needs a little more substance than what you gave in the in the Stewards of Eden. But um, Got it. I would like you to just share with our listeners just a little bit about you, um, things that you know you think might help us to get to know you a little bit better. And then if, if and when any of those things connect with what got you interested in this topic and kind of led you in, in this direction. Hmm. Well, as I talk about in the book, I really have always been invested in creation. Let's put it that way. I've always been the person who out in the middle of a long hike will just stop and listen to the silence and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, I've always been a person who is just astounded by the beauties of creation and the self-revelation of the creator through his creation, which of course is Romans 1 and Genesis 1. So I've always been that person, but when I came to faith in my late teenage years, uh, I came to faith with a group that was thoroughly convinced that Jesus was coming back any day now, and we needed to involve ourselves in things that really mattered. And that category for my early discipleship was getting souls saved, and everything else was disposable. So I honestly didn't think that those very um, native passions of mine, which had been implanted in me, I believe by our creator, were um, part of the Christian identity. You know, this isn't something we do. Uh, We're not out to save raccoons, we're out to save uh, people. And so I sort of put those things aside, but uh, they kept popping up. And they kept popping up both in my own moral commitments and in my own scholarship. And honestly, the more I advanced in my studies of the biblical text, the more I saw over and over and over again that concern for the stewardship of this planet is an aspect of the character of God. And so there there are two stories I tell in the book. Um, One is the first time I actually preached on environmentalism from the pulpit, and maybe we'll save that one for a bit later. But the other one that was very telling uh, was during my uh, time at Wheaton College as a professor of Old Testament and uh, the um, very esteemed uh, uh, endowed chair of that department, uh, Kristen Page, and I had uh, applied for a faith and learning grant. And Wheaton is kind of famous for its liberal arts identity and trying to coordinate the various disciplines. So faith and learning is a big issue to them. And we proposed a class on uh, the Christian and environmental uh, thought, environmental commitments, and we entitled it The Bible and Biology. And so Chris and I were all geared up to teach this class. Again, she's a classic biologist, botanist. Her background is in field research. And I'm a classic theologian, right? So here we are standing in front of the class. We've got 25 Wheaties sitting in front of us, and they are all fabulous. And 
well-educated, well-prepared, socially informed, all that sort of thing. And Kristen and I deployed the classic icebreaker. Every teacher has done this and your podcasters will, uh, your podcast audience, if you've got teachers in the crowd, they've all done this. And it runs kind of like this. Um, Tell us who you are, what your name is, what your major is, and why you chose to take this class. Innocent, right? Innocuous, right? Um, Well, as we went around the room, every one of those students gave essentially the same testimony. They said, my name is this, this is my major. I have always loved God's creation. And they would fill in the blank with uh, bird watching, camping, rappelling, hiking, um, whale watching. Um, But I didn't think I was allowed to incorporate that love or advocate for that love as a part of my Christian identity. So I'm so glad that you offered this class. Okay, every one of them said the same thing. And then when it circled back around the room and I looked at Kristen and she looked at me, we said, yeah, us too. Hmm. So what is that? You know, where, where is it that the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve who have been programmed to love the masterpieces of the creator's hand think that we're not allowed to love and defend creation? So it was that juncture where I said, I need to write this book. And it was a long time coming, um, really 10, 15 years of work and lecturing and research. But it was at that juncture that I said, okay, this needs to go into print. Wow. Well, I'm so glad it went into print, um, honestly. And that, that was a, a great background, a great setup, I think, for the book. That gives me a little encouragement, Sandy, because I... <laughs> As I shared with you earlier, this was so new to me, and my mm. listeners will recognize this as well. I mean, we're talking about stewards of Eden, and I I have done some teaching myself on Genesis 1 and 2, and again, see things in there that are good and right and helpful, mm-hmm. but really missed um, all of what you're talking about. And it wouldn't be mm. that I read your book and I say, oh, I now I disagree with her. She's pulling things out. It's just, wow. I mean, talk about a a major blinder that was just put there Hmm. as if you don't approach the Bible with these kinds of questions is maybe what I had subconsciously thought. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure to be honest with you, but Mm -hmm. um, uh, you brought me to tears several times in your book, Mm -hmm. just describing the the beauty of what could be and Mm. the ugliness of what is in our world. And, um, so I, I, I wondered if you could, you know, like I said, since all the, all the Wheaties, is that what you call students at Wheaton? Yeah. <laughs> Wheaties. Yes, I we like do. that. That's... I keep, I keep trying to talk my Westmont students into letting me call them Westies um, <laughs> because they call themselves West Monsters. And I'm like, I'm not sure I like this. Oh, wow. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Westies is a little so, more inviting, I think. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm on a campaign for social change, but go ahead. <laughs> excellent. No, it's excellent. But but I guess, and that may be why you're, in your introduction you you listed several reasons why mm-hmm. you think um, this has been you know the blinders have been on or people have have always felt guilty about how do they bring these in? Could you talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit about what you see as some of those and maybe which one or two 
stands out the most to you? Yes, absolutely. Well, and let me first say that the book is essentially a biblical theology. Hmm. So for yep. those who are thinking about switching the channel right now, um, <laughs> this book is not a manifesto on environmentalism. It's, yeah. It is a tract on what the Bible has to say about uh the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and what their responsibilities are yes. to uh, the landlord of both the garden, Canaan, and this planet. Yes. So that's what the book is. And ultimately, the goal is to walk the Christian reader through their own Bible, asking the question, is environmental concern an aspect of the character of God? And therefore, should it be an aspect of the character of the Christian? So, as you've already said, um, what are the issues that have, have blinded so much of the Christian church on this topic? I, I talk about how the church has lost its way on this topic, and I, I talk about how the church has historically been the moral compass of our society. And this is our our great gift to this fallen planet, that we are salt and light. And although the church screws up on a regular basis, and oh my gosh, is that in the press these days? Hmm. Reality is that at our best, we, we were the ones who built more hospitals, more orphanages than any other organization on this planet. We were the first voices for suffrage. We were the first voices for... Um, civil rights. Uh, this is the church at its best. So why have we, the moral compass, lost our way on this topic? And I name three issues. Uh, the first one I name is politics. <clears throat> and this is characteristic particularly of American politics. Uh, I was just over in London last year offering the Lang le lecture at the London School of Theology, and they asked me to lecture on environmentalism because I just released the book. And the question of the lecture was advertised as, can a Christian be an environmentalist? And all the Brits showed up for this lecture and said, why are you even asking that question? Of course, Christians can, must be environmentalists. So this is unique to American politics. But in American politics, as you and I know so well, we are heavily polarized, especially now, <clears throat> and the traditional political allies of environmentalism are not the traditional political allies of the church. And this is blowing up all over the press and the media uh, right now. So, gosh, by the time you, you post this podcast, things will have changed yet again. Yeah. But as we look at the history of our country, for the longest time, uh, if you were a Christian— you were pro-life, which meant you were a Republican. If you were an environmentalist, you were therefore a Democrat. And so the uh, situation has evolved so that environmentalism has been pigeonholed into a political profile that makes it alien to Christian concerns. And what I do in the book is I challenge the Christian to remember what kingdom they actually belong to, whose politics should be shaping yours and my moral compass. 
<clears throat> and the answer is neither side of the aisle. Uh, the answer is that we are citizens of another kingdom and we are answering to another master and our politics are shaped by the suzerain of the universe. So I speak first to that issue of, guys, let's shake ourselves loose of American politics as we shape our own moral profile. Mm -hmm. And I challenge my readers to get back into the text and ask what the Bible has to say about this. So that's one issue. Yeah. Um, the second issue I raise <clears throat> is an issue that is very common to so many topics of social justice on this planet. And that is that wealthy or at least comfortable Americans don't see the fallout of their own behavior. Uh, we have an environmental protection agency for good or for ill. And there are certain things that are illegal in our country. And so we export the industries that wreak havoc on our, our, our ecosystem. Uh, so the leather industry and plastics industries, so many of these things have been moved to other countries where we don't see it. Uh, I talk in the book about um, issues of deforestation in Madagascar, where predatorial industry have left this island paradise 90% deforested, and the widow and the orphan are starving to death as a result. We don't see that. And since we don't see it, we don't think it's real. And so one of my jobs is to help my readers see it. Or something closer to home, mountaintop removal in Eastern Kentucky and Western Virginia, which has devastated the lives and livelihoods of Americans and our brothers and sisters whose water is poisoned, whose homes have been bombed, whose children have died from boulders cascading down the side of coal removal sites. We don't see it. And since we don't see it, uh, we don't believe it's real. So that's a, a second issue. And then the third one, and perhaps the one that is of greatest interest to your audience, is the fact that there are certain parts of the New Testament that seem to teach, and I emphasize the word seem, that this planet and all of its flora and fauna are simply going to burn. And since they're going to burn, we need to get about uh, doing what is most important to the creator's agenda. And Back to my early testimony, that's getting human souls saved, not preserving ecosystems or the animals that inhabit them. Wow. Sandy, th those those three things leaped off the page to me when I first read them. And now I'm I'm second guessing my question of of you know pigeonholing you to identify <laughs> one. Those three are even to me um, as far as realization i i grew up and i had a, a dispensationalist um background i guess underpinning mm. way of reading scripture which i have long since moved beyond or away from or however you word it um but that one yeah that this earth is bound only for destruction and that there's nothing we need to be focusing in on here um and I don't think that's just dispensationalism. I mean, okay. in many ways, that's premillennialism, right? Okay, yeah. Um, but go ahead. No, you're exactly right. And I would say, yes, in the heightened partisan politi political scene today, 
where different sides get, you know, pigeonholed various things in, in your context or, or you, your life personally, do any of these three surface as, Ooh, this one, this one was really the one that was, was the most surprising or the most, um, maybe the, the one most to blame for, for this lack of concern? Uh, well, remember that I'm an academic. And so, uh, I, I live in this, this <laughs> I live in this make-believe world called the academy. <laughs> um, and, uh, so in my world, environmentalism tends to be a fairly friendly topic. Okay. Uh, it is in my other world, the world of the church, where it is much more contested. Okay. Um, so let me say that when I was a seminary prof, and I tell this story in the book as well, uh, I taught first at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is in Wilmore, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington. And I taught second in Wesley Biblical Seminary, which is in Jackson, Mississippi. And these two regions, Central Kentucky and the Deep South, are kind of the last guys on the train as regards American interest in environmental issues. So between the church culture and the regional culture, those two communities were very resistant to the idea that holiness might be an expression that, let me say it another way, that environmental concern, that creation care, that good stewardship might actually be an expression of holiness. I actually attempted to do a sequence of holiness lectures at a college that I will not name um, on environmentalism. And <laughs> whereas those lectures uh, typically would pull in hundreds of students, we topped out at 17. Um, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> because the topic wow. was so foreign. Um, so for me, myself, uh, I loved the journey of research. And just like you, who doesn't love the journey of finding out what the biblical text actually has to say about a topic? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I think about the passage in um, Isaiah about bringing treasures out of the storehouse. Um, so in seeking out uh, the biblical instruction on preserving the wild animal, treating the domestic creature with dignity, uh, treating um, habitats with respect and deference. Uh, these, I loved the, the journey of research. Um, but I think the thing I would say that was most surprising to me was digging in to... Hmm. to how bad things actually are and to the corporate corruption that supports it. Wow. I think those are my two biggest surprises. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think surprise is a good word. Um, I, <clears throat> my sense is in our current time and climate that there's a lot of fair bit of denial um, yes. about whether those things are real. And, and I tend to think it's because we almost can't stomach that type of view of ourselves or of things that we've grown 
to love and and cherish as a, such a normal part of our lives. Um, mm. And I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt who who might naturally come and say we have these oppositions or we have these um, we, we're not sure we agree with what you're proposing. And I say what what's really mm-hmm. going on under the surface? What why are why are we have a defensive posture about this? as opposed mm-hmm. to one that's, that's more open. Um, but yeah, I think the corporate, the corporate, um, destruction, I guess, if, if you will, and how mm-hmm. that really, um, damages individual lives, um, in this, for the sake of progress, I guess might be a way to, might be a well, way to look at it. I, I would throw in the vocabulary of corporate exploitation mm. for the sake of, of profit. In fact, a proverb that I repeat throughout the book is the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He has given it to us to use in our need, but not to abuse in our greed. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually dare to make the statement that if it weren't for greed, we would not have an environmental crisis. Our environmental crisis is not based on need. It is based on greed. In fact, there is a quote that I make use of in. um, I've got it up right here on page 106. (laughs) Yes. yes. Yeah. Do you want to read it? Um, Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay, So the conclusion of the book is entitled, How Should We Then Live? And let me reiterate that this book is brief intentionally. This is not a magna opus. This is not an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. I wrote it in many ways to be a tract. I wanted my Christian liberal arts students to have something that they could say, yes, this is an issue that my faith speaks to. Yes. I wanted the Christian, uh, the concerned evangelical to be able to say, even if my church has failed me on this topic, my faith has not. I right. wanted that for them. But I also wanted that same 20-year-old to be able to bring this book home and hand it to their parents and for their parents to read through it and say, oh, my gosh, my Bible is in here. I'm listening. And mm. if I really succeed, I want it to be a book that can be handed to the grandparents and they can say the same thing. Excellent. So yep. here in this final concluding um, chapter, how then should we live? I, I launched with a quote by a guy named Gus Speth. And if we've actually managed to land a couple of true environmentalists on your podcast, you know his name. Okay. He was the chairman of the Council of Environmental Quality under President Jimmy Carter. Now that's a long time ago, right? <laughs> um, but he also has spent his life in environmental activism. He has held more roles in the world in environmental um, organizations than you and I could shake a stick at. Hmm. So here he is coming to the end of his career and he's being interviewed. And this is what he says. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And here it is, Joshua. 
his final line, and we scientists don't know how to do that. Mm. <laughs> when I first came across that quote, I felt like I was sitting on the bench during the last three minutes of you know the state finals in my field <laughs> hockey team in high school. And my coach turned to me and said, it's all up to you. Yep. Get in there. <laughs> Get in there. That's right. That's what, that's what that quote does to me. Oh my goodness. Well, and that's, that's exactly why your, your book, it, that was the perfect quote to put as your conclusion, because it does seem with these partisan political, Hey, that's the environmental, that's the Democrats and we're the pro-life morals. That's the Republican side, because the truth is Christians know why selfishness, greed, and apathy are real things in the world. Mm. And what you've mm. done is simply shown us how we have applied those selfish, broken aspects of our humanity to the environment, to animals, mm. to um, the planet. And you're, that's good biblical theology. <laughs> so I'm so glad you brought that up because, um, yeah, I had a, I had, um, that written down here with a double underline saying, we need to talk about that quote at some point. So <laughs> hmm. you, uh, you jumped right into it. You know, it's funny. Several years ago, I was with Daryl Williamson, who is um, a leading voice in the black church. He pastors in uh, Tampa, Florida, and he helps to sponsor uh, a citywide conference called the Rise City Summit every year. And it's this really powerful gathering of Christians from the Tampa area. If you're from that area, find it and go. Um, in fact, if we've got any young listeners, um, KB, uh, the, the gospel rapper, he comes from that church. And by okay. the way, he's a really good preacher. Okay. So um, Daryl invited me out of the blue to come and speak at a Rise City Summit on environmentalism. And if you are a part of the environmental crew, you know that Florida is not a leading state in this battle. And um, this just was not an invitation I expected. And I, I didn't know these people. So I showed up expecting um, to have some conflict. You know, I've had more than one walkout on various presentations. Mm, wow. And uh, I got up in front of this crowd and gave my presentation. And when I reached the end, there was this matriarch in the crowd. And if you know the black church, you know that matriarchs are really important. Mm -hmm. And she stood up with her cane. Wow, wow. <laughs> and um, she started doing a 360, turning around the crowd and shaking her cane at all the folks in the crowd saying, are you listening to this woman? Do you hear what she's saying? When I was a girl, we had a garden in the front yard. When I was a girl, we used our things until they were worn out. We didn't just throw them away and buy something new. And she's going around the circle and she's calling them all out. If I had called for an altar call after that woman, I would have had the entire crowd <laughs> at the altar. She was awesome. Wow. And she's that grandparent generation yeah. who is looking at the biblical text and saying, yeah, we used to pay attention to selfishness, greed, and apathy. Hmm. And we don't anymore. We're a throwaway generation. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what, again, that those three, we are a throwaway generation. And so throughout your book, again, I'm assuming several or, or all of my listeners may not have read your book yet. So um, mm. 
and want to go out and, and get it. But if you would um, touch on just some of the areas you focused in on um, mm. throughout your research, I know each of them kind of has their own chapter. Um, mm-hmm. And then just, you know, if you want to reference the, the passages from Deuteronomy where you're getting these things from, but I just want to kind of set you up to just hear the, the main categories, environmental, the animal care, um, widows, orphans, you know, the whole thing. But to just talk a little bit with us about that, like, okay, we're committed to the Bible. We're committed to mm-hmm. seeing how greed, selfishness, and apathy have taken over. Now you're going to show us some specific areas where that's been the case. Okay, super. Well, um, I do what all biblical theologians should do. I start in Eden. And if your listeners have read my Epic of Eden, that's where that book starts as well. And my general posture is that the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 communicates God's blueprint for creation, Hmm. that his goal was to create a perfect, thriving, interdependent ecosphere in which humanity would thrive and would thrive as a steward of all the other players on the field. So as we look at Genesis 1 and we see that seven-day presentation of perfection, we see that the moon and the stars uh, in day one are linked with uh, the day and the night in day four. In other words, the rulers, the inhabitants, are placed in their habitat to have dominion over their realm. So sun, moon, and stars are placed in the day and night. The birds and fish are placed in the skies and the ocean. The land animals are placed on the dry land. And this is day one to four, day two to five, day three to six. And then the penultimate celebration of this creation week is, of course, the creation of man and woman made in the image of God and made to fill this planet, to have rulership over it and to care for all that has come before. And then day seven, this beautiful, amazing um, climax of the symphony is when God looks on all he has made, declares it good and sits enthroned above it all. So there are some very important theological messages going on in that uh, just gorgeous seven day creation hymn. Hmm. And the primary one is that God is creator. He's in charge of everything. His authority uh, envelops the whole and that humanity, land, animals, bird, fish, sun, moon, stars have all been placed in their appropriate spots with a particular authority structure and humanity stands under the authority of their creator and over creation. And then we get to Genesis chapter two, and in Genesis two, God clarifies exactly what is it that this reflection of his image, this steward, this child, Adam and Eve, are supposed to do with creation. And it says very specifically that humanity is to serve, la'uvda, and to protect, la'shomra, this creation. And of course, they're to do this as a reflection of the character of God. Yeah, humanity has got dominion, no question about it. But the dominion that's been given to them is the dominion of the Almighty. And it has been modeled to them how they ought 
to lead and to serve. And we're specifically talking about Genesis 2.15 here. Then Yahweh Elohim took the human, put him into the garden of Eden to tend it and to defend it. Mm -hmm. So this is our task. And this is the blueprint. And I imagine for a while what a planet might look like without the fall. How long would it have taken Adam and Eve to reach Mars? And, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, three years, maybe. Um, What would our civilization look like without greed or oppression? What would it look like without bias or bigotry? Um, What would it look like if the strength of the empowered did not necessitate the oppression of the marginalized? Mm -hmm. And I, I talk about progress without pollution expansion without extinction yeah what would it look like if the children of of eden had continued in their role of being able to treasure encourage and tend the creatures of this planet and i think that every one of your listeners somewhere in the back of their heart they have a longing a memory a whisper of that would look what that would look like and and for me, that's what I hear when I'm on that, that deep dive hike into the redwoods and I'm six miles from anywhere and I stop to just listen to the silence. I hear the voice of God. I hear the echoes of Eden. Hmm. So that, that was the plan. Yeah. Yep. And I, I talk about how Eden was ultimately a land grant offered to humanity by the creator. And I move that into modern language and I talk about renters and landlords. And any one of your listeners who's ever rented anything, you know that you put down a security deposit, right? Hmm. And if the landlord comes back and you've trashed the apartment, or if the lease car is returned with scratches all over it, uh, you're going to pay and you're going to, you're going to pay significantly. Yeah. Um, This is what a lease is all about. That's what the garden was. And then I catapult the reader into the next leasing, which is Yahweh's lease of the land of Canaan to Israel. And I talk about the people, the old covenant and their landlord and how the land of Canaan is a gift to Israel. It is, if you know your Bible, parceled up by the almighty, not by the political leaders and offered to the 12 tribes. Their borders are defended by the Almighty, and they are responsible to care for that land according to his authority. And so then I start diving in in detail. Okay, what does it look like to care for Yahweh's land under Israelite law, like real civic and federal law? And big surprise, you're going to find in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which reach back into the very shadows of Israel's experience, that they were required to practice sustainable agriculture. They were required to actually fallow their fields. And one of the things that Yahweh says to Israel through his prophets, when the exile hits, he said, you didn't fallow your fields. You didn't treat my land with respect. So I'm sending you to Babylon for 70 years as slaves so that I can get my Sabbaths back. I'm going to restore my land without you because you refuse to take care of it. That 
should scare all of us. Wow. Yeah. Um, there's law tucked into Deuteronomy about defending the wild creature. There's law tucked into Deuteronomy that forbids environmental terrorism. And there's law tucked into Leviticus about humane slaughter of the domestic creature and certainly the humane raising and treatment of the domestic creature. So I have uh, the readers explore all of that. And after I lay down the biblical principles, which, you know, most of your listeners are like, you're kidding. Sustainable agriculture is in Deuteronomy. Where's Deuteronomy again? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, it's in there. I, I feel like, you know, a Geico commercial. Yeah, it's in there. <laughs> it's in um, there. <laughs> it's in there. So I do that in the first half of every chapter. And then in the last half of every chapter, I offer a contemporary case study demonstrating how those principles, now not the exact method, because obviously agriculture has uh, transformed pretty significantly since the Iron Age, but how the principles of sustainable agriculture, of humane treatment of livestock, how humane slaughter, how those would affect contemporary situations. And I want to pause here because I know you've read the book and, and ask you, Joshua, which of those contemporary situations struck you the most? Oh, I'm really thankful you asked that. Yeah, I, the the part that just brought me to tears was the conversations about the slaughterhouses for cattle mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the places where the chickens live um, and or I think it was some of the 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 pigs themselves where the mothers will have never been able to like, mm -hmm. um, they had to sleep standing up because the pens were too small. Um, they literally spend their entire life in that space. Um, because the goal is to mass produce as much meat as we can for the cheapest cost. Um, mm -hmm. And so what stood out there was when, you know, if we're talking about the way Israel was to care for their own cattle, um, there you, you gave an illustration um, in there, or you tried to set us up with this idea that they're, they're raising grain for their own families. Mm -hmm. And the best research we can come up with means that a, a, to sustain a family of five, you would need so much grain per year based upon mm -hmm. the, the research of what we think was available. You were, you were suggesting that somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 days a year worth of mm -hmm. grain might've been lacking in the typical Israelite family. And therefore how tempting would it be to muzzle the ox while he's threshing, knowing what an ox takes in, in terms of daily consumption, how tempting it would mm -hmm. be to think if we just don't pay pay, right? There's, if we just don't give that much of our food to our oxen, then we would have more to give to mm -hmm. ourselves. And of course, like you said, if, if God himself is the one who protects their borders, God himself is the one who supplies the rain and supplies the growth, then the question is right in front of you. Do I trust mm -hmm. Yahweh to provide this for me? Or do I pull some away from my oxen? Sandy, I mean, it, I know these passages. I mean, they're, they're, mm. they've been deep, but I've just never stopped. Of course, like you said, these aren't in our backyard. We, I don't 
have a food shortage. I mean, my goodness, I have to tell myself to stop eating because I, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and yeah. I can laugh about that, but that's not the case for millions and millions of people. Um, mm-hmm. But those were the parts that gripped me so much was big business. We want mm-hmm. the cheapest meat. We want the most for it. And yet the the suffering or or the one man who said that sometimes the cows are still still mooing while they're Mm -hmm. dismembering them. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this and just thinking like, how do I not know this? How do I Mm -hmm. not know this? Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. And the answer of course, is that going back to an earlier part of our conversation that, um, I don't want to villainize anyone. Uh, let, Let me stop there. I want to say that I am responsible, right? Yeah. I I need to change my life. Uh, but let me say that corporate America uh, is uh, is 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 the group that has the power to change this. Mm. And this whole consumer mentality that we have come to celebrate in American culture. I say this to my students all the time that if Jeremiah was wandering down Main Street. The number one thing I think he would be yelling at Americans about is our consumer mentality. Mm, And so we have set up a corporate industry as regards domestic livestock, which is what you're speaking to here, how we raise market, how we raise slaughter market and consume animal flesh that is so profoundly inhumane that if the average American had any idea what was going on, um, there would be a revolt in this country. But corporate America is working very hard to make sure that you, Joshua Yoder, never see this information, Yeah, which is the source of something called ag-gag laws. Do you remember that from the book? I do. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that if you would. Yeah. So ag, of course, uh, stands for agriculture. Gag means to gag. Uh, The ag-gag laws in our country have been attempted by dozens of states. And this is basically state-based legislation that is designed to make sure that the average American never sees a slaughter plant and never sees the inside of a mass confinement animal husbandry facility. Mass confinement animal husbandry is what we would call factory farming. And uh, factory farming is that effort to, um, uh, well, let me read the definition. Factory farming is the practice of raising livestock in confinement at high stocking density, where the farm operates essentially as a factory whose end product is protein units. Confined animals burn fewer calories. Their excrement is mass managed or mismanaged, as most of North Carolina would tell you, Mm -hmm. and their fertility and gestation fully controlled. So we have all these pictures on our milk cartons of, um, you know, cows happily grazing out in green pastures. Um, We have images on our chicken packages of chickens out in a backyard chicken coop pecking at the ground. Whereas in reality, 95% of the meat that comes to market in the United States of America 
those animals have never been exposed to the light of day. They have lived out their entire existence in warehouses. Be those animals as big as a 500 pound sow or as small as a six pound chicken. Um, mm. Never outside, never released. Uh, for the pigs, as I detail in the book, the mass confinement of pigs, because pigs are a very lucrative industry in our nation, that mass confinement has been distilled into an exact science. If you just do a Google search on hog structures or hog raising, this exact science will be celebrated um, all over the market base of <clears throat> the internet. So we're talking a situation where 20 uh, meat-raised pigs, those are 230-pound animals, 230 pounds. Think about the biggest person in your household, yeah? Mm -hmm. 20 of these creatures uh, exist in 7.5-foot square pens their entire lives. Um, these are metal-barred pens. They live out their lives on cement flooring. They um, uh, live in uh, 40, 60, now 122-foot-wide wing-to-finish buildings that confine these animals from birth to slaughter. So those images on your milk carton and your chicken packaging, they're complete fiction. That's not what's actually happening. Mm. And then the ag-gag laws <clears throat> make sure that it's illegal to enter these facilities and certainly to take any images of a slaughterhouse. So I tell a story in the book about a young woman who was arrested um, because she stopped on her way to work one day and pulled out her cell phone on a public highway and started filming the outside of a slaughter plant. That's all she did. And it was the Dale T. Smith and Sons Meatpacking Company in Draper, Utah. And this is 2013. This isn't ancient history. All she did was stop and start filming on her cell phone. And within seven minutes, her car was surrounded by police and her cell phone was confiscated. She herself was jailed. This is the United States of America. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I I think that's how it it that hits me like I don't I don't even have the words for it. I mean, that's when you talked about the corporate exploitation for profit. Mm-hmm. And and then what is our relationship? Again, the moment you you take in any level, any any bit of truth, you're you're instantly faced with the the reality of, well, what what needs to change then if if I'm going to accept this as true, <laughs> and mm -hmm, um, I right. think we see that with Jesus quite a bit, which is why he created such a stir with those who were mm. eager to accept it and those who weren't. Um, but that's what I see when when I read that kind of thing. I just stop and I think. Oh my goodness! It's it's just so much new information to take in. It's mm -hmm. pulling back the veil. Um, it's of this is reality, even though the reality we think is real is really fiction, like you said. Um, mm -hmm. So th those were the things that hit me 
the, the <clears throat> most. Um, and I'm sure they hit, hit you too. W- were there other things yes. for you personally that were like, wow, let's, th- this is another area. I had no idea this was going on. Yeah. Well, one of my primary sources, or let me say the, my entry point into the issues of um, mass confinement, animal husbandry, slaughter in our country, because in particular, I feel responsible there because it is my credit card that's going down to uh, purchase um, animal products in my country. So I I think that struck me uh, very particularly because I'm involved in this every single day. Um, So my point of entry was uh, a particular book by Matthew Scully. It's entitled Dominion. Um, What is it? The Dominion of Man, the Suffering of Animals, and a Call to Mercy. That's the overall title. So just reading through that book, which is encyclopedic. Uh, Scully is a a well-known journalist and it was an expose. Um, Honestly, I had to put the book down on a regular Mm -hmm. basis because I was vacillating between tears and nausea. It was just so horrible to be exposed to what's really going on behind the veil. It was reminding me of the jungle, um, you know, that very famous piece about the uh, uh, factories of early America um, and so many other exposés. So those things struck me uh, profoundly. And of course, my research launched from there. As always, I am deeply grateful that the biblical text offers a response. And the response is, this stuff ain't yours. You know, that's, that's the primary message of scripture. Yeah. The, this land, these animals, the plants that dwell on this land, the waterways, these are not simply to be exploited for my own personal gain. All of these wonders belong to the creator. And I, as a creation and as a steward, I have to answer to him as to how I deal with his possessions. Yeah. So when I talked about not villainizing anyone, I mean, we definitely have major corporate issues um, and we have major planetary issues. But the first question anyone has to ask at any time we listen to a message that convicts us is, okay, what about me? Right. Mm. It's really easy. I, I, I love this little saying. It's very easy to listen to a sermon for someone else, right? <laughs> yeah, very easy. <laughs> um, I think you need to repent of X, Y, and Z. That's well, right. what do I need to repent of? And <clears throat> this is the message I was attempting in that uh, college sequence of lectures, um, holiness lectures, that I believe that environmental responsibility is an aspect of Christian holiness. So just like it is my responsibility to share my income with the widows and orphans of this world, just like it is my responsibility to be salt and light in uh, the public arena on, on, you know, name your topic. It is my responsibility to live with holiness regarding the stewardship of this planet as well, Mm -hmm. which 90% of that 
is going to require that I rein in my own appetites, that yeah. I rein in my own yeah. appetites. And those are appetites for uh, cheap meat, for example. I actually, you know, now when we go to the grocery store, we read labels. I want to know where that animal was raised. I want to know how that animal was slaughtered. And once I know those things, I'm going to wind up paying more for that carton of eggs for uh, free range chickens that were raised without antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera, than I am going to be for the mass produced battery cage um, uh, eggs that cost me a lot less. So uh, I'm going to have to rein in my own appetites. I'm also going to have to drive a car that might not be a gas guzzler. Uh, I'm going to have to lower my thermostat. I'm going to have to plant native, not exotic, in my yard. I'm going to have to actually put some money on the table and enroll in Sierra Club, become a member of the Nature Conservancy. I'm going to have to vote to limit my own privileges if I'm going to take care of this planet. Mm -hmm. So what is that look like in my own life. And as you know, uh, the appendix to the book is entitled Resources for the Responsive Christian. So, okay, if we actually get to the place where we're convicted about these topics, what am I going to do about this? Yeah. And what I'm going to do about this can't simply be painting a piece of poster board and marching in a parade. One and done, I get to go home. Yeah. Nor does it involve just getting to post a few outraged tweets and Facebook posts and driving home in my 17 mile a gallon um, luxury vehicle. No, I, I'm actually going to have to change the way I live. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you you brought all that in, Sandy. Um, the appendix was great. And yes, for listeners, the whole appendix is here's what you can do. Start small, but but be consistent. Um, take take on some of these challenges. Change the way you shop. Do a little bit more research. Think about your car. Think about walking instead of driving. I mean, it was just so helpful. And because you framed the discussion so rooted in good biblical theology, it it for me anyway, it kind of shook off that knee jerk reaction I have to say, oh mm -hmm. no, here's that democratic side coming in or here's this conservative <laughs> side, you know, it, it just, it, it's all a non-issue because we've, we don't lead with political parties. We lead with the kingdom of God. And mm. that even as you, you described too, you know, heaven, as we know it, where everything is aimed, heaven is just Eden restored. And that's, yes, I love that very succinct way to state it. And I could not agree more. I think you are you are exactly right. And um, this whole discussion for me has caused me to rethink quite a bit. So I, I appreciate the the pushback that you've that you've given to no, it's not enough to march in a parade or not enough to do an angry tweet. We we've got enough of that going on today. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Um and so many issues. Well, we we are actually almost out of time. I just I just want to skip down. I know I had sent you a couple other questions, and I don't know if we have time to even do do all of them. So, just this one last one. Um, where do you see? Well, we've kind of talked about this, really. Where where do we see the need the most for the church? I think this is it. Mm. It's, it's this awareness of what we are, what we potentially have been neglecting, and time mm. to 
take the Bible seriously in that way. So let me back up to that other question that I had sent to you. I come across several people online and other places who, because of the exploitation like you're talking about, I've I've uh, read a number of people who have looked at the Old Testament um, as somewhat coming under attack because of its apparent exploitative measures regarding views on women or slavery or genocide. And Mm. uh, they are almost wanting to kind of jettison all of the Old Testament or lots of it as outdated or that's Mm -hmm. the Old Testament and now we just need Jesus. But obviously you are finding treasures in that same Old Testament. And you being an Old Testament scholar, I did not want to miss the opportunity to just set you up for several minutes to kind of give us some guidelines. How are you able to reach into specific verses in, let's say, Leviticus or Deuteronomy and pull out such treasure? While at the same time, Sandy, if you came across some of those passages in Leviticus or Deuteronomy that seemed on the surface at least to disparage women or promote Mm -hmm. slavery or other things, you know, how does the competent Christian student of the word navigate stuff like that in this very um, polarizing climate that we're in. Yeah, well, as you as you implied, this is a huge topic, so <laughs> yeah. um, we can probably just touch on it and maybe schedule another podcast at some point. Um, sure. I can say that I've spoken specifically on the topic of women on several podcasts. Um, and uh, let me think, the Same Team podcast has one on this. Um, I also have done, I'm, I'm just trying to remember where these are. Um, I've done several online articles on the women issue in particular, and a couple of podcasts on that too. So there, oh, there's great. some material okay. out there yeah, if your listeners great. would like to search it. Um, so... Uh, as what does my, my colleague, John Walton loves to say it this way. Um, although the old Testament was written for us, it was not written to us, Mm, meaning the original audience, of the old Testament is an audience of that is 3000 years beyond our experience. And in those 3000 years, tremendous (laughs) shifts of economy and culture and uh, law and social structure have transpired. And one of the weaknesses of current conversations is that people are busy trying to, oh my goodness, try to judge the ancients by current codes without understanding the ancients. So let me say as someone whose expertise is indeed in Old Testament law and Old Testament culture, People who think that our current systems are more moral than theirs uh, just don't know what they're talking about, (laughs) just to Mm -hmm. be very blunt. Um, On a recent article that I will be putting out with the Journal of Evangelical, uh, the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, uh, it is on the rape laws of Deuteronomy. And my closing sentence for the article is essentially when all is said and done, and all of these laws are reviewed, uh, I am fairly confident that my two daughters would be safer 
wandering about the hill country of ancient Israel in the Iron Age than they are trying to cross the quad at UCLA. Wow. Uh, so it takes uh, it takes an education, and you're a seminary grad. You you know this, and yep. unfortunately, the average um, the average church is not educating our people in their Old Testaments. They don't have a framework. They don't have cultural competence when they step into the Old Testament. So. I can't even begin to answer those huge questions here, but I can say for those who were concerned that their Bibles are unjust and that God's law is um, uh, misogynistic and bigoted, uh, it's not, let me assure you. As a woman who mm. has lived in the has lived on this planet more decades than I care to admit, and who has spent a great deal of my life living among the people of the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot more going on there than you might think. And yes, the Old Testament uh, steps into real space and time and therefore must adopt a culture of real space and time. Yeah. In that adoption, uh, the God of the Old Testament is constantly critiquing as well. Yes. Well, Sandy, that was an excellent, very short answer to a humongous question. So, <laughs> and yes, <laughs> I, I definitely want to find some of the work that you've done on women and yes, these rape laws and things, but you're exactly right in my own study as well. Yes, these are explosively big questions and it comes with a lot of study that's necessary. So that that is one area and I, I always go back and forth between whether I'm more gifted to be a teacher or how that translates into preaching. But I, mm. I do tend to think that our church in particular, like I want our church thinking like biblical theologians. I don't want them thinking like cherry pick verse here, cherry pick verse there. Like mm. the context and the groundwork that you're laying in your books is so needed today. And so um, just from one, one person interested in this to the next, I'm, I'm very thankful for you and very thankful for oh, your thank work. You. Um, and this, this conversation has been excellent. You're just, you're so easy to follow, so easy to understand, which I really appreciate. Um, but also I know you speak with a lot of knowledge and you have the, the training and the education to support that. So Thank you. Well, thank just, you. Just thank you for being on the on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to put links to some of your work so listeners can find you. But if if they want to find you, are you you have an online presence as well? Things that they might be able to connect with you. Well, I am certainly my faculty page. Um, my Amazon authors page is regularly being updated. Okay. Um, I am. Oh gosh, I. I, my curriculums come out through Seedbed and HarperCollins Zondervan. Okay. Um, really just a search of my name will produce a, a lot of stuff. I'm looking right now for a link for you for my uh, material on women. And oh, yeah. um, 
And I am interested in the fact that I don't actually have it in my CV, which is not a good thing. <laughs> well, um, if and when you find it, please, yeah, please send that to me, and then I can make that available for for listeners as well. That's very intriguing. Um, yeah, what, what you're what you're talking about here, I didn't even realize that you had done that. Um, well, I have I have an article that was published with the Biblical Mind Center for Hebraic Thought. Um, which is uh, the lectures are actually going to come out um, in a in a book as well. Um, so uh, I think your listeners would be very interested in that. Um, there was a just a a, a great um, the editor at Hebraic Mind um, did a, a great job with that particular article and. Uh, pulling it down to a popular level so that it was easily engaged. So um, that one's out there. I'll send you links and uh, hopefully we'll get those links available to your readers. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Um, I just, I wish you the best. I hope you have a great weekend. And um, if we get a chance to connect in the future, I'm sure it'll be just as pleasant and as exciting as this one was. So Thank you very much. Well, it's It's been a joy to be here. Joshua, thank you for the invitation. And um, I am eager to hear what your listeners have to think of all of this. So I'll be happy to share what I what I hear from them. And I'll, I'll probably put this out in several weeks and then I'll, I'll send you a link once it's once it's live. OK, so, great. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks to you. Bye bye. As I shared in the introduction, Stewards of Eden is a book that you definitely want to go out and purchase. So again, a big thanks to Sandy for coming on the podcast and talking with us so clearly, so plainly, so directly about things that ultimately matter to God and therefore should ultimately matter to his followers. And so thank you, Unbinding the Bible listeners, for your faithfulness and your love and support and encouragement throughout the weeks and months and the years that this podcast has been going on. If you're new to the podcast or you reached out just to listen to Sandy's conversation, um, welcome to the podcast. Um, There are other By the Book episodes sprinkled throughout the podcast as well as wrapping up a study in the book of Revelation that's taken us Goodness, um, over a year and a half so far. We are nearly finished, uh, but there have been other topics, other themes back in the beginning of a few chapters of Genesis, as I shared things that I missed that Sandy pointed out, but other things that we talked about that I think are are also helpful to understand the, the nature of the church and ultimately who Jesus is and who he is recreating his people to become. And so if you um, are encouraged in any way by this podcast, I would ask you to leave me a rating or a review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these podcasts on. Again, thank you for some of you reaching out on Messenger or through email or text or whoever. If you happen to know me, you've got other ways of getting in touch with me, but really thankful for the encouragement, thankful for each of you, and I hope you have a fantastic week. Talk to you next time. Thank you.